pray again together. Father, we praise You for Your Word, that it's true, that it's right. We praise You we can gather here today without fear with Your people. I pray now for the power of Your Spirit to come upon me and to come upon us so that we can hear Your Word and we want Your Word to produce an abundantly good uh, harvest in us. Would You form us, mold us, shape us more and more to the image of Jesus through Your Word now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today I'm going to be looking at a great Christmas passage that gives us these glimpses into the heart of who Jesus is and what His kingdom is all about. As Richard read, we're going to be looking at first some events in the life of Jesus not long after He was born, and then we're going to look at um, two different saints, Simeon and Anna, who have this incredible privilege of seeing the Lord Jesus with their own two eyes. Much of our passage is about this experience of two people who, after a very long uh, period of time, finally experienced the fulfillment of something they had been waiting for. For thousands of years, God's people waited patiently, and not so patiently sometimes, for Emmanuel, God's promised deliverer, who would finally do everything that God had promised His people. He would come to crush the head of the serpent. He would inaugurate all these promises that God had been making to His people Israel how He would bring final salvation and judgment uh, to this earth. So our passage, what we see is kind of the wonder and the joy of people experiencing really a new chapter in God's salvation history. A chapter where God's people have their faith made sight and they get to finally do what we're all longing to do, and that's see the Lord Jesus and hear the Lord Jesus and touch Him. So today I want to think about our story as a play with two major acts. In Act 1, we're going to talk about this, these events that happened to Jesus and the circumcision and presentation. And in Act 2, we're going to look at two blessings and two people who are present for these events in Jesus' life. Let's turn our attention now to God's Word in Luke and let's, let's dig in. So our passage begins by mentioning that after eight days after Jesus was born, he was circumcised just as God had commanded all the descendants of Abraham to do. And there's some important theological things that are happening in these uh, details. Now, undergoing circumcision, God's declaring that his son will be counted amongst fallen humans who need the sign of God's cleansing power placed upon them. Although Jesus was sinless from birth, from his earliest days, he really was numbered with the transgressors, as Isaiah prophesied. And his circumcision designates him as the true son of Israel, someone who will inherit all of God's promises to his people, and he will go on to fulfill all those promises as well. When Mary and Joseph name their son Jesus in verse 21, Really what they're doing is they're faithfully obeying this angelic message about uh, what his name should be. We don't get lots of details about Mary and Joseph in the birth narratives, but the little details we're given really show them to be people who seek to honor God by obediently following God wherever He will lead them. And if you read the birth narrative side by side in the Gospels, you see that right away Mary and Joseph experience suffering and hardship because of the Lord Jesus if you read Matthew's Gospel, we know that not too long after our passage here, Herod is going to work hard to murder the Lord Jesus. They have to flee in the middle of the night to another country uh, to avoid uh, Herod's wrath. Mary and Joseph really teach us that obediently following God's directives, that will not be easy. They will be costly for us. 
So then in verse 22, we're told that the family begins uh, to make this trip to Jerusalem in order to fulfill the purification rites commanded for women after childbirth and for the dedication of their firstborn. These Levitical laws of Israel mandated that a woman would be declared unclean for seven days after giving birth to a male child. Then she had to stay put. She couldn't go into the sanctuary for another 33 days. So after basically a total of 40 days, a historically symbolic number in the Bible, she was supposed to go offer these, these offerings in the temple. A burnt offering and a sin offering in order to be ceremonially cleansed. We know from this passage that Mary and Joseph were the lower economic class because they offered two birds, something God had allowed if you could not afford a lamb. Now, when we read these Levitical laws, they look outdated to us. They look strange in a lot of ways. But God gave them to communicate really essential theological truths about the nature of who He is and the nature of human beings. These clean and unclean laws are meant to constantly remind God's people that their bodies and their souls, they were frail, they were limited, they were earthly, they were broken in some way. That only God could cleanse and restore and strengthen His people so they could enter into His perfect, glorious, holy presence. These clean and unclean laws are designated to teach and remind God's people that we are inherently weak and we need God's gracious appointed sacrifices to cover our weaknesses, and also our sins as well. Okay, so what happens next? We see that uh, Luke, and, Luke says that Mary and Joseph also brought Jesus to the temple to present Him to the Lord. Now basically what this is referring to is uh, what he quotes from Exodus 13. It's the passage that mentions how the Lord commanded Israel to consecrate to Him all the firstborn of the land. If you remember in Exodus what's going on, you'll remember that this command was given in the context of God's final plague of judgment that He had brought on the Egyptians, the death of the firstborn. So the idea in Exodus was that God took the firstborn from the Egyptians as an act of judgment, and that Israel was to remember God's mercy shown to them by dedicating their firstborn to Him. So really what God was essentially saying to Israel that it, is, it was the birthright of every firstborn to really be a priest for God. So what most Israelites did was to give their firstborn child to the Lord and then pay a certain fee to the temple so they could ransom their child and bring them back into the family. The idea here was that the Israelite parents would offer their firstborn to God and then receive their child back. Now, if we think about it, what all these things are saying in light of God's revelation as a whole, there's a lot of subtle irony here in what Luke is telling us about Jesus, how through his parents he submitted himself to these requirements of God's law. Think about this. It's remarkable that Jesus, the fulfillment of all God's laws, submitted himself to the very law that he authored, the law that all points to him. It's an enormous display of humility to consider that Jesus really was born under the law, that He put Himself under the law. He doesn't call His people to do anything that He Himself was not willing to undergo. It's also ironic to think about in our passage the fact that Mary and Joseph offered up these prescribed sacrifices for Jesus, the one who would later be God's final sacrifice for our sin, the one who we could, uh, one who would forever transform and fulfill all of God's laws. Think about also the fact that Jesus is dedicated in the temple as the firstborn, 
Of course, no one in Luke's story would pick up on this, but we as people who have all of God's revelation can understand that Jesus is God's perfect and final priest dedicated to God for His people. And Jesus is God's true firstborn Son. In other places in the New Testament, He's dedicated and declared to be the firstborn of all creation. The Scriptures say He's the firstborn from the dead. The setting here is important as well when we think about the context of the Gospels, that Jesus comes to the temple here in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is really one of the most significant uh, parts of the setting of the Gospels, and it's going to be very significant in Luke's Gospel. Jerusalem really is a huge part of Jesus' life from beginning to end. We can think about several decades later, Jesus will come back to Jerusalem to really fulfill everything Simeon is going to say that Jesus has been appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for the sign that will be opposed. Okay, so that's really Act 1 in our story, how Jesus comes to fulfill the law in these really important ways. Let's move on now and look at verses 25 through 38. So now we're going to look at these two blessings that are declared in two different people. Now Luke tells us in verse 25 that in the midst of this scene, this, this figure shows up, this guy named Simeon. Uh, and later he mentions this other character as, as well, as prophetess named Anna. Let's look at Simeon for a second. What does God say about Simeon here? We're told that Simeon was someone who was righteous and devout and that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Luke tells us that he was someone who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he's been waiting for God to come and to comfort his people by visiting him in this special way, uh, by sending the promised Messiah. Various places throughout the Old Testament, especially the book of Isaiah, prophesy that after Israel endures the pain of God's judgment through exile, God will again draw near to his people by restoring them and comforting them. We find this in places like Isaiah 42, this passage we've been reading throughout the season of Advent, uh, where God says to to Isaiah, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. We should note this verse comes right before the verse we find in Isaiah 43, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, a verse that all the gospel writers say are going to be fulfilled in John the Baptist. Luke and the Gospel writers understand that in the coming of Jesus and the coming of John the Baptist, God was fulfilling all of His words He had spoken centuries earlier through the prophet Isaiah. And that in Jesus, God was going to send His Messiah to comfort His people. Luke also puts a a spotlight on the role of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that in our passage here? In this whole scene, he's going to mention the Holy Spirit three times, just in two verses, verses 25 through 26. We're really going to see Luke do something that's very important in the Gospels and throughout the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit really does for Simeon what he continues to do in the life of every believer. He connects people to Jesus. All right, so what else about Simeon do we see? We get the sense that he's been waiting probably for a very long time for the promise to be fulfilled. He was told that before he would die, he would see the Lord's Messiah. And now finally, this moment he's been waiting for his entire life has come. You almost get a sense, don't you, that he's overcome with joy when the Spirit finally leads him to Jesus. When he first sees this baby, he scoops him up in his arms, almost like a new proud father would. 
And he does two things. He spontaneously blesses God and then he blesses Mary and Joseph. So let's look quickly at what he says in his blessing to God and also to Mary and Joseph. First, what does he say when he blesses God? He says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. We don't know really how old Simeon was, unlike Anna, but you get the feeling that this is something he's been waiting for, right? His entire life for a very long time. And the story with Anna, this experience is highlighted even more in verses 36 through 38, where we see that she's at least 80 plus years old, and she's been in the temple waiting and waiting and waiting. You can imagine the scene that Simeon and Anna let out, maybe a deep sigh of relief, this sigh that exclaims, finally. Simeon proclaims to God he's now ready to die. He's ready to go in peace because he has gotten to see God's promise of salvation right in front of his very eyes. Centuries after Simeon, another great saint in God's church, Augustine, wrote this about God in his book Confessions. He wrote, You've made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. Simeon really embodies well what Augustine is saying here that his restless heart can now finally rest because he has seen God's promised salvation in Jesus. In Simeon and Anna, we see this incredible shift in redemption history where God's saints begin to see the promises fulfilled right in front of their very eyes. Notice also the enormous faith that Simeon displays here by mentioning that in Jesus, he sees God's salvation. What strikes me about this is that Jesus is still a baby at this point. He's a helpless, weak creature who must rely on his parents to survive. Jesus hasn't accomplished anything yet. But Simeon speaks as if God's salvation is as good as done. Because he is so certain of what God will accomplish through this baby. Again, by faith, Simeon is able to look from his present into his future and know for sure that God's going to accomplish Everything he said he would through the coming of Jesus. Okay, what else does Simeon say? Simeon tells us that God's salvation has come in Jesus, and he also says more or less of the Gospels about God's mission to the world. And he really says this in in two different ways. First, he mentions that God's salvation is something that he has prepared in the presence of all peoples. And then he, again, he stresses the universal scope of the gospel message by mentioning that it has come to both Gentiles and Jews. This has been a key promise from the very beginning of Israel's story. God promised Abraham in Genesis his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And we know that the only way this promise could ever be fulfilled is if God did a work of salvation that expanded far beyond Israel's own borders. So in the coming of Jesus, clearly, again, we see God fulfilling all of His promises. From the beginning of Jesus' life, it's clear that God is coming to this far-reaching, sweeping work of redemption that includes people from every tribe and nation and language. Even in Jesus' birth, from the very beginning, we see God fulfilling this promise by sending a star that would be seen by Gentiles, Gentile kings, who would follow the star all the way to where Jesus was. And so in Simeon's words, we see the heart of the gospel involves God's mission to all kinds of people. 
The gospel message was never meant to be a message that we hoard to ourselves. No, God's intention was for us to share it with our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers and anybody else God puts in our path. The gospel message isn't just for us, but for those outside of these walls right now, those who are still being gathered into the people of God. The glorious truth about God's work in our world is He's drawing people to Himself in our city and our state and our world who look very differently than we do. He's drawing people to Himself from every walk of life, every race, every socioeconomic class. This is a very simple truth, but when you read the Bible, you, you see, especially in the Gospels, it was extremely controversial. It's clear when you read the New Testament that this was a word that many in the first century in Israel did not like. They hated this. If we just flip forward two chapters in Luke, you see this at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Luke 4. The scene where Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. Do you remember this story? This incredible scene, Jesus gets up in the synagogue. He reads from a passage in Isaiah about the Spirit anointing Him to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, and people love it. They eat it up. Do you remember what happens next? As soon as Jesus begins talking about God's mission to the Gentiles, Luke says they, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. And then Luke mentions that the crowd basically tries to forcefully kick Jesus out. They want to take him to the brow of a hill so they can throw him down and kill him. See the same idea throughout the New Testament, especially when you read about the ministry of Paul. So when you consider Simeon's words in verse 32 in the wider context of the New Testament, this is the tragic truth that is very clear. Often the greatest threat to the advancing of God's mission isn't found outside of the church. Instead, it's found within the very people of God. Now I'm hopeful and I'm very optimistic about no one's going to plot the murder of our church leaders if we start talking about God's mission to all kinds of people in our city. But I think we should all consider the essence of what Simeon is saying, that an essential part of the gospel message is that God intends for the good news about Jesus to go out from our church into our city, into our world. People of God, do we think this theological truth is as important as any of the other things we hold dear at Trinity? Do we think God's mission in the world is as essential as our views about our children? or our families, or our views about men and women, or marriage, or the sacraments. And if we think this aspect of the gospel is essential, how does this practically affect what we do here at TPC? Okay, so that's a spontaneous blessing that God says, that Simeon says to God. So let's move on now to verses 34 to 35. And Simeon's going to speak this blessing to Mary and Joseph. It's primarily uh, aimed at Mary. Look at what he says to to them. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So quickly, let's look at what Simeon says here. This blessing is quite different, isn't it? It has a much more dark, ominous tone to it. Simeon's words indicate that the coming of God's Messiah, it will be a mixed blessing. And as we've already mentioned, Jesus will experience great opposition uh, in His coming to His people. Some will respond in faith and experience the joy and blessing of participating in God's fulfillment of all His promises. And as Luke's Gospel unfolds, you can see that those who rise and those who fall, 
in response to Jesus defied many of the common expectations of his day and our day regarding who is an outsider and who is an insider in the kingdom of God. In the narrative of the Gospels, we see a variety of repentant sinners respond in faith to Jesus. You see God's salvation and Jesus come to sexual sinners, to notorious and despised crooks and cheaters, to blind beggars. We see Jesus lift up women and the weak and the sick. We see Him come to Roman soldiers and those who are demon-possessed whose lives are really destroyed. People who clearly would have been viewed as outsiders or outcasts or socially in fear in some way in first century Israel. But for many others, even within the people of God, the rejection of Jesus will be their own downfall. And every time I read the Gospels, I'm so struck by this sobering reality that the people who opposed Jesus the most, who hated Him the most, were the most religious. The people who loved the Bible, the people who were very uh, dedicated to their religion. Simeon understands on some level that this little baby he was holding was going to be God's final and greatest prophet. And if you read the prophets and the scriptures, it's clear that prophets always come to proclaim a word of salvation, but also a word of judgment to those who refuse to have ears to hear and eyes to see. This is what Simeon is getting at when he mentions that Jesus will be a sign that is opposed. All right, then in verse 35, Simeon tells Mary that the sword will pierce through her own soul. Again, Simeon, through the power of the Spirit, understands that great suffering is coming for Jesus, and by default to Mary as well, because of her relationship with her son. The coming sword that will pierce Mary's own soul, this is likely a reference to Jesus' coming death. So Simeon in verses 34 to 35 describes Jesus in ways that clearly already are going to foreshadow the cross. He understood that the mission of God's Christ declared even as early as his his infancy was to go to his own death, to the cross. Simeon's prophecy to Mary about Jesus mentions what we see elsewhere in the Bible, that Jesus is both the cornerstone of God's people, but he's also a stumbling stone, a stone that will prove to be some people's downfall. So again, Simeon, even as early at this point in Jesus' life, understands on some level where this baby is heading. He's heading towards the cup of suffering and death that awaits him further down the road. So here's a practical application for us here that's simple, but it's really important. Simeon teaches us to expect opposition to and suffering for the gospel. Simeon indicates that this opposition will be connected to Jesus' work of exposing the contents of people's hearts. He says that in Jesus, the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. It's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? That the gospel has this uniquely powerful way of exposing what is really in your heart, what's really there. And again, you see how this plays out when you think about the gospels. We can see that it was the most religious people in the land that were revealed as the people that hated God the most. And faith was revealed in many outsiders in Jesus' own day. And the sword that Simeon prophesies will pierce Mary's soul. This is a picture, a clear picture of what all followers followers of Jesus will experience on some level. That because we are united to Him, um, we will undergo His suffering in some way that mirrors His own life. 
following Jesus on the road to resurrection and eternal glory will take us through the same places that he experienced as well. Suffering, opposition, loss, tears, maybe death. We will know Jesus through the fellowship of his sufferings. And in all this, we must remember our brothers and sisters all throughout the world right now who experience fierce opposition because of their faith. I was so saddened. I was struck. I was moved. The last few weeks, have you heard about this? Uh, about the church in China. And Pastor Wang Yi, who was sentenced uh, to nine years in a terrible place. Um, he's a pastor of a Chinese Presbyterian Reformed church. Uh, China has really cracked down on this church very hard over this last month. Many of his members have been arrested. Almost all of his officers were put in jail. Some have been released, some have not. Um, you can read more about Pastor Yi and his church, Early Rain Covenant Church, and a lot of things that he's written. He's written profound things about what does it mean uh, that we should expect suffering for following Jesus. You can find this uh, at chinapartnership.org. I discovered this last week. What else can we learn from our passage today? I want to close with just one more thing from our passage that I want us to think about how we can apply this. Here it is. Simeon and Anna teach us how to wait on God. It teaches how to wait on God. Much of our own Christian faith will be very much like Simeon and Anna. Waiting and waiting and hoping and longing to finally see Jesus. When we put Simeon's prayer in the context of redemptive history, we see that there's an eschatological element to this, an element that makes us consider our own future salvation that is surely coming for us. For now, uh, we're living in a chapter of God's salvation that can be characterized by Jesus' words, Blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. Our current experience of our faith mirrors much of how Simeon and Anna experienced their faith prior to seeing Jesus in the temple. God gave Simeon a promise, a promise he was going to live his life around, that revolved around patiently waiting and trusting the promise. Of Simeon's life and body, what St. Augustine wrote about God, that our hearts are restless until they find our rest in Him. But we must see that there will always be a restlessness inside of us until we experience what Simeon did. Seeing God's salvation in Jesus with your very eyes. Simeon says that once he was able to see Jesus, he was ready to go. He was ready to die in peace. What's implied here is that Simeon was never really able to rest until that day that he saw the fulfillment of God's promise of seeing the Lord Jesus and touching Him with His hands and speaking to Him with His own voice. And people of God, it's hard to wait, isn't it, in a fallen world? I hate to wait on just about anything. Uh, whether it's waiting rooms and a doctor or waiting on children, or waiting in line at the grocery store. Waiting is a place for me that usually produces a lot of frustration and a lot of anger. And it does this because I have to face the reality every time I wait that I'm not in control, and I just can't get what I want when I want it. At various points in our lives, we will be tempted to flee the pain and the frustration of waiting for God. 
Uh, and we can see this in a variety of ways. People do this in a variety of ways. We can do this by drifting towards a theology that seeks to eliminate the aspects of our faith that involve the frustration of waiting. I was struck by this, again, last uh, few weeks, last month or so, uh, in a headline that played out about the tragic story of this little girl who had died in this charismatic megachurch in Redding, California, in Bethel. The church is called Bethel Church. Did you hear about this? Wake Up Olive? Are you familiar with this? This little girl in this very large charismatic church named Olive Hellingenthal, she, she died uh, tragically. Um, and her family and her church begins to pray for God to resurrect her from the dead. The social media hashtag, Wake Up Olive, began trending everywhere. It was all over the internet uh, for a lot of days. It went viral. And of course, a longing for our children to be rescued by God from death, this is a good thing. It reflects a good desire. And God's church should rightly grieve with the Hellingenthal family and the people of Bethel over this, this terrible tragedy that's taken place. But when I read the story and I thought about Bethel Church, what made it even more tragic to me was the cruel theology that was mixed into the event, a theology that Bethel Church clearly promotes. This is a theology that tells people if you just have enough faith or trust the Spirit in the right way or whatever else, then you just don't have to endure the frustration of waiting on God anymore. You can have heaven right now. You can go straight to resurrection glory without the struggle and the suffering of the cross. We could also be tempted to forsake waiting on God by becoming people who are just cynical and harsh and negative when life gets really hard and it doesn't stop being hard. Of course, none of us would ever say uh, that God's promises will never come to fruition in my life, that we're putting all our hope in an illusion, a theological mirage. But for a lot of us, our, our functional theology has much more to do with despair than it does faith. Our steady, simmering anger and our bitterness towards people in our life that we care about or in the world in general, it betrays that in our hearts um, we really don't want to wait anymore. We're done waiting. And we don't think we have to wait. But throughout the Scriptures, this is what we see. We see an essential part of our faith is for God's people to wait for God to fulfill His Word. That's what Simeon and Anna teach us to do. This is what we see clearly throughout the Scriptures in places like Psalm 27:14, where David tells us, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is what we read earlier in our, our, our Scripture reading in the service today. Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. People of God, we must ask ourselves, what are you waiting for? Is it possible you're waiting for the wrong things? Are you waiting to have perfect children who don't sin or make painful mistakes? Are you waiting for your spouse to finally love you in the ways that you have always wanted? Are you waiting to be financially secure enough so that your heart will never again be touched by anxiety? And fear. Maybe some of you are waiting for the people who have harmed you the most to finally come to you and apologize and make things right. Of course, none of these things 
are bad enough themselves. But the Scriptures would have us set all our hopes on something much bigger, something much better. God would have us set all our hopes in what Simeon and Anna waited and waited for their entire lives, to see Jesus face to face. That's the only thing that will finally make our restless hearts rest. When our waiting is oriented around this, then our experience of living in a fallen world, it'll begin to change at least a little bit. Because I can stop waiting for everything that's broken to be fixed right now. And instead, I can look to God's promise of salvation in Jesus. His promise that the Lord Jesus will come again, and He's going to make the world the place that I long for it to be. I can stop living to get what I want, when I want it. And instead, I can begin living for the life of the world to come. People of God, do we expect the frustration of having to wait on God to just be a regular part of life for us that is inescapable? So Simeon and Anna, they teach us how to wait, and that all are waiting for God to fulfill His promises, it's going to be worth it. We are living for the day we will have an experience very similar to Anna and Simeon, even greater than what they experienced. We're living for the day when our souls will finally be at rest and at peace. The day when we'll see God's salvation in Christ with our own eyes. You'll be able to touch Him with our hands. You'll hear His voice as clearly as I'm speaking right now. And this coming day we'll experience the climatic fulfillment of every promise God has ever given His people. We're living for that day uh, that Simeon was blessed enough to experience. This day when we see God's salvation again with our eyes, and we'll look on our crucified and risen Lord. This day when our faith is going to be made sight. This day when our patient waiting for a hope that we currently can't see, it's going to be over. It's going to be done. And that day we will join Simeon, we'll join Anna, and all God's saints around the throne, and we'll join our voices together in this eternal song of praise. And in that day, what we're going to do is we're going to experience in full the words of the prophet Isaiah. Listen to what he says. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we praise You for Your Word. And we do praise you for the Lord Jesus that he has come to this earth, that he's inaugurated um, your kingdom, that he's fulfilled your promises. And Father, we look to him in faith, longing to see him. Father, help us wait patiently by faith. Help us know what to do uh, with waiting in a fallen world. Father, would you refresh us uh, today, this morning, and the rest of our time together uh, through the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Would you help us look to him as our food, as our sustenance that will nourish us for the journey ahead? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.